Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. In episode 15, we cover the disturbing death of Shad Therian. In this episode, we have an update on his case. You don't have to listen to episode 15 for this one to make sense. But if you're looking for a deeper dive into what happened in this case, check that one out. The woman who murdered Shad was recently sentenced, and that's what we're talking about today. Take it away, Bob. Taylor Shabiznis was convicted in July of homicide, third-degree sexual abuse, and mutilating a corpse. These crimes were committed more than a year before against her friend, Shad Therian. I keep telling you, friends aren't necessarily a good thing. In the middle of a cold February night in 2022, a woman in Green Bay, Wisconsin, heard the side door to her home closing and went to see who it was. It wouldn't be unusual for her son, Shad Therian, to come to her house to do laundry or occasionally stay in her basement. As she turned into the laundry room, at the bottom of the stairs, she found a bucket that was out of place, with a towel lying over it. Removing the towel, she saw what appeared to be her son's head in that bucket. Taylor Shabiznis and Shad Therian were friends, and Taylor was the last person seen with Shad. So police quickly made contact with Taylor and found her with blood on her hands, literally Shad's blood. Over the next few days, she cheerfully described how she choked Shad with a dog chain during a sexual encounter. This was after the two, according to Taylor, injected methamphetamine and trazodone. All the drugs. Drugs are bad, okay? Shabiznis says she took 51 hits of meth on the last day of Shad's life. I've never done meth, but that sounds like a lot of meth. Is that even, like, can, can somebody even do that much meth? Well, it's a quantity the defense expert has never heard of before in his decades of studying this sort of thing. Taylor says the choking was consensual, a part of intimate play they both enjoyed. But she escalated things far beyond kinky when she decided she wanted to see Shad die during the encounter. So much for safe words. Ding a ding ding. I my my. But that wasn't the end of the depravity. Oh no, she described to investigators how she dismembered Shad cuddled with his corpse, continued having various forms of sex with his lifeless body, including placing a dildo in his mouth. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, and at one point during an interview, she couldn't recall the exact sequence of some events and explained to the detective that she didn't know because she was sucking and cutting at the same time. A delightful person. She said she got tired while she was dismembering and molesting Shad's body and took a nap because I guess this sort of thing wears a person out. She unapologetically described leaving parts of Shad's body in various places in his mother's basement, including shopping bags tucked here and there. And the bucket that not only contained his severed head, but also several knives and his penis. She had some of his body parts with her in a crockpot box sitting on the back seat of a van she was using. Now, did Miss Shabiznis show any signs of remorse for her actions when the police confronted her? She expressed regret, not for any of the horrific things she had done to Shad, but for not taking his head with her. I really wanted the head, she said to detectives. I got lazy. 
A jury found her guilty of all three charges after less than an hour of deliberation and, in the second phase of the trial, took just about an hour to reject her insanity defense. I don't know if you call that deliberation as much as just the amount of time it took 12 people to use the bathroom, stretch, try to forget everything that they had just watched and heard, and fill out the verdict form. Bet. On September 26 in Brown County, Wisconsin, now it was time for sentencing. Without question, Taylor Shabiznis would be sentenced to life in prison on the homicide charge. That part of the sentence was mandatory. The court had no discretion to vary there. But there was something the court would have to decide at the hearing. The decision for the court was whether she would be eligible for extended supervision, more commonly known as parole, at some point, and whether her sentence for the crimes of mutilating a corpse and sexual abuse would run concurrently with her homicide sentence or consecutively. The state of Wisconsin argued to keep her locked up forever while the defense tried to make the case that she should eventually be given the opportunity to re-enter society and see her now two-year-old son. That poor kid. Taylor entered the courtroom in an orange jumpsuit and a white cloth-like object covering her head from the nose down. Some who watched the proceedings speculated that she was wearing underwear on her face. But if that were indeed the garment we were seeing, it would have to be a rather large and unflattering pair of granny panties, which is seldom a wise fashion choice to wear on one's head, especially in court. Instead, it seems she was wearing a spit hood, a cloth tube that covers the face and all around the head from the midpoint down, sewn to a sheer netting that covers the top half of the face and head to allow visibility. Spit hoods are generally used when you have a prisoner who has a history of being a bit difficult or unruly or, as you can imagine, is a spitter. Nobody likes a spitter. It wouldn't be the first time her bad behavior was on display in court. After all, she attacked her first defense attorney in court earlier in the year and threw a chair at a defense expert during a psychiatric interview. Or was this somehow arranged to prevent the judge or victim's family from seeing her smiling and giggling like she did during much of the trial? For the sentencing, the state called no witnesses. The defense, however, called the defendant's grandmother, cousin, father, and a pharmacist. Taylor's paternal grandmother, Hester Coronado, described Taylor as a loving girl with a big heart who suffered many losses in her adolescence and early adulthood. Among those losses were the death of her mother when she was 12. Taylor's father remarried a year later, and while he and his new wife and children began their new life together, Taylor and her brother were relegated to the basement of the family home. Mrs. Coronado said it left Taylor feeling abandoned and misplaced. Taylor lived with her grandparents in Texas briefly to finish high school after some issues at the school in Wisconsin, although what those issues are were not revealed. I think a lot of teenagers are relegated to their parents' basements without murdering their friends and cutting off their parts. Mrs. Coronado explained that Taylor came to live with her in Texas when she was pregnant a few years ago. The 81-year-old grandmother and her husband are raising the defendant's two-year-old son in their home in Texas. God bless him. Ooh, you got that right. The child has been in their care since he was brought home from the hospital after being born in October of 2021 because authorities would not allow Taylor to keep the child. CPS wouldn't even allow the baby to go to grandma's house if Taylor was living there. When she had the baby just four months before she gruesomely killed Chad Therian, her grandmother says she was excited about the baby and appeared to be doing well. That's terrifying. 
Now, Taylor's brother, AJ, was killed in a motorcycle accident in July 2022. The defense attorney elicited the fact of his tragic loss from nearly every defense witness, seeming to punctuate the losses that led to Taylor's mental state. But AJ died more than four months after Taylor strangled Shad to death, dismembered his body, and had sexual relations with his corpse. The next witness called by the defense was Valerie Armour, Taylor's cousin on her mother's side who grew up with Taylor's mother, Marla. Valerie, a psychiatric nurse practitioner, traveled from Ohio to testify on behalf of Taylor. She described the convicted killer as a happy, loving child with a sense of humor who is still capable of love and empathy. Just don't let her near a knife. Valerie testified that she believed Taylor had suffered great loss, had a trauma history, and mental health problems. She also expressed her hope that Taylor would get the help she needed to work on her issues and have an opportunity for parole at some point. She also expressed an apology on behalf of her family to the family of the victim, Shad Therion. Taylor's father, Arturo Coronado, was the next witness to take the stand. He donned an orange jumpsuit and shackles. Arturo is in prison for the sexual assault of a child in a case that was filed in 2018. He was sentenced to 12 years, about a week before his daughter's trial began. Ugh, that's gross, and raises so many questions for me about what might have been going on inside the family home. But that's for another episode. Well, what else did Arturo, admittedly I can't say it the way you say it, you got really into it, have to say about these, uh, this whole thing? Arturo reiterated how difficult it was for Taylor to lose her mother when she was young. Although the witnesses during the trial and during the sentencing seemed to have purposely avoided discussing how Taylor's mother died when she was so young, there was a hint from defense counsel in his closing that alcoholism may have played a part. Taylor's father acknowledged his remarrying was likely difficult for Taylor. He also blames the system for leading to this outcome. Arturo says he had Taylor committed to a psychiatric facility while she was pregnant over mental health concerns and says she subsequently fell through the cracks and is not receiving the treatment she needs. He also blames Taylor's husband, Warren Chabau, who later changed his name to Warren Chabusiness. The two met in 2017 and were married in 2020. Arturo says that Warren introduced his daughter to methamphetamine. Speaking of Taylor's husband, Warren, he wasn't called as a witness and didn't appear in court, although he expresses his love and support for Taylor via social media posts. Turns out Warren is in federal prison serving a sentence for drug possession, which he says was part of a plea deal to avoid a more serious distribution charge. Warren writes that he stands by his wife. He said that he'll be released soon, and he hoped that Taylor would be released too, and they would be able to see their son whom they both love. I don't think that's going to be in the cards for them, but um, how you doing keeping up with all of Taylor's character witnesses, Bob? We need some kind of a scorecard or a flowchart to keep track of Taylor and her immediate family here with those that are in prison for various reasons or have left the earth. Taylor's attorney asked Mrs. Coronado, Arturo, and cousin Valerie whether Taylor deserved to be punished, and they all agreed. When he asked each of them if she was a monster, they each denied that label and said that she had redeeming qualities and deserved a chance to eventually return to her family. The final defense witness, Dr. James O'Donnell, a pharmacist who clearly is well-educated and experienced in understanding the effects of prescription and illicit drugs, spoke about Taylor's chronic drug use and the use of drugs on the day of the homicide. Brilliant as he obviously was, Dr. O'Donnell's voice and testimony would be the ideal prescription for an insomniac. 
Whether the judge remained alert for his entire testimony is unknown, as this observer was lulled to sleep halfway through. Although the state chose not to examine any of the other defense witnesses, they did have some questions for Dr. O'Donnell. They seized the opportunity to have the expert repeat what he said about permanent brain damage as a result of Taylor's chronic drug use and raised the notion that, despite her family's fond memories of a loving, caring girl, it may be physically impossible to overcome the structural damage that's been done. And we spent a lot of time talking about your business. Did, did anybody from Shad's family speak during the sentencing hearing? The victim's uncle and father both spoke and something quite unexpected would come from each of them. Shad's uncle, Kelly Therian, approached the podium with quite a presence about him. Yeah, he did. With shoulder-length blonde hair, dark-rimmed glasses, and a look of purpose and knack for wordsmithing that we would soon discover, he looks like he could be a cousin of Kid Rock, a guy you might like to have a beer with, albeit probably not a Bud Light, and get to know. I thought he looked like Dog the Bounty Hunter's lost nephew, but I would definitely drink a Miller Light with that guy. What about his wordsmithing? Uncle Kelly addressed the defendant as Taylor shit business, and then acknowledged her difficult life, but said that many other people have had rough lives too. To make other people suffer because you were suffering is pretty shitty, he continued, so that name shit business fits you well. After speaking about Shad and the loss the family has suffered by his disturbing death, he closed his remarks by saying, I'm not a praying man, but after Judge Walsh here sentences you today, I will pray that you meet the same fate as your idolistic Jeffrey Dahmer. So have a good life, shit business. The gallery erupted with applause. The Jeffrey Dahmer remark refers to the earlier revelations that Taylor has a fondness for the infamous serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer, who was known to dismember his victims. Dahmer was killed in prison shortly into his sentence. Now let's not gloss over this. Dahmer was killed just two years after he was sentenced, and it was from a gruesome beating. Another inmate who'd had enough of Jeff beat his head in with a metal bar from the weight room. I, I think Shad's dad spoke too. What do you got on that? Yes, Chad Therian's father, Michael, brought a different surprise to the podium in his remarks. He offered forgiveness to the woman that killed and defiled his son, asking the court to make it possible for Taylor to see the streets again sometime in the future. He said, I believe everybody makes bad choices, and maybe not to this scale, but I think there's a lot of hope for you. I think you can make use of your time and be a better person and do great things yet. It does no good for me to hate you. I know you got a heart, I know you got a mind, and I wish you no harm, and I hope things go well for you. Wow. So how does a judge contend with completely opposite requests from the victim's family? Well, Judge Walsh not only has the views of Shad's family to take into account, he also has to consider the defendant's risk to society, whether it's safe to have her running amok on the streets again. This sentence should also serve a deterrent purpose to dissuade others from committing such crimes in the future by establishing harsh criminal consequences. Although the many reasons not to do such a horrid thing should be obvious, that's not always the case. Another aspect to consider is punishment. Society demands that criminals pay for their crimes. And of course, what's often stated as a central factor in sentencing is an offender's rehabilitation. Returning the criminal to society after addressing the issues and providing tools for them to be a contributing member of society and to not break the law anymore. Would Judge Walsh find redeeming qualities in this offender? 
Would he believe she could be rehabilitated with the right mental health treatment and perhaps medication and drug counseling? Caleb Saunders prosecuted the case and argued against the defendant ever having the opportunity to be released. Saunders, who appears relatively young, strikes this observer as a guy that could be cast by Hollywood as a high school drama teacher who has several cats and a well-decorated apartment and drives a small electric vehicle. Despite his apparent youth, the attorney for the state appears to have a strong command of legal knowledge. He's quite relatable, and perhaps most striking for an attorney, his trial strategy suggests that he understands more is not always better. He's able to make a strong and convincing case with a minimum number of witnesses and a minimal number of words. That's a lot easier to do when the defendant is caught with the victim's blood on her hands, his body parts in her car, and confesses to all the crimes. In addition to describing the manner in which Taylor took Shad's life as horrific and incomprehensible, the state argued that her actions after Shad was dead were egregious acts of callous brutality that had not been seen before in Brown County. Saunders pointed out that the defendant has shown little to no remorse for her crime. He also took the opportunity to talk about the victim, whose life, he said, had been overshadowed by his death. He talked about the defendant's hopes and dreams for the future, which she's seeking an opportunity to carry out at some point if given parole, but Shad will never have that opportunity. Saunders briefly mentioned the defendant's prior criminal history, including three prior convictions for kicking an officer, apparently under the influence of methamphetamine, fleeing at 80 miles per hour through downtown Green Bay, and absconding from probation by cutting the monitoring bracelet off of her ankle. She was placed on probation just six weeks prior to killing Shad, Saunders said. He also referenced a note on page 7 of the pre-sentencing investigation report. What was interesting about page 7? Well, that's where Taylor is quoted as saying, I don't have any regrets about what I did and I do not feel remorseful for Shad. Saunders takes the position that extended supervision should not be available to a criminal who doesn't take responsibility and has no remorse. Wow. In reading some people's comments on this case, they point to Taylor being in some sort of meth-induced craze when she committed these crimes, but even if that were true, it doesn't explain why a year later she's saying that she has no remorse for Shad and has no regrets. I I'm, I'm not sure how you defend that. Mr. Freilich, the defense attorney, argued the defendant should not be denied the chance to return to society, articulating random aspects of her past as though he was reading from her work history, photo albums, and perhaps scribbled notes at the same time. So you think he's like F. Lee Bailey meets Perry Mason, or what? If Winston Churchill had the oratory skills of Mr. Freilich, the national dish of Britain would be ragu a la bolognese. And if Einstein had Mr. Freilich's ability to organize concepts, the world would still be wondering what E and MC squared had to do with one another. But I digress. The defense argument focused on Taylor's childhood, what a happy normal child she was, the family that supported her, and the bad experiences she lived through. He retold many of the clips shared by the witnesses, pointed to a relatively insignificant criminal history, and an addiction to drugs from an early age. An addiction, he argued, his client needs help with, along with her mental health issues. Little late for that. Freilich hinted at the possibility that we would hear from the defendant during the sentencing hearing. But when the judge asked if there was anything she'd like to say before he imposed sentence, she offered only three words, saying, no, there isn't. Isn't that four words? Or maybe it's considered three and a half, since one of them's a contraction? I don't know. 
The court took issue with the idea put forth by Taylor's father that the system was to blame. He acknowledged the defendant's childhood difficulties, drug use, mental health struggles, but focused most of his statements on the need to protect the public and the seriousness of the crime, saying this crime offends human decency, it offends human dignity, and it offends the human community. He described her actions as shocking the community beyond the ability to adequately express in words. With that, Judge Walsh imposed a sentence of life without the possibility of parole for the homicide, seven and a half years of imprisonment and four years of extended supervision for the mutilation of a corpse conviction to run consecutively, and three years of imprisonment followed by four years of extended supervision on the sexual assault conviction to run consecutively to the other sentences. I'm terrible at math. What, what does that mean? Taylor is in prison for life and then some. Her poor cellmates. Stay away from the weight room. Now, the brothers in crime talking about other brothers in crime. Before I read anything about this that you sent me, you could warn me before a mugshot's going to pop up that's going to scare me and make me jump. What is it, his mustache or his highlights? Like his eyes are pressed up against the camera lens or something. Here's the thing. There's a theory that somebody that's smarter than I am shared with me before, and it's that when you see somebody like this guy where you can see a little bit of the white underneath of his eye, uh-huh. they're always crazy. Oh. And I think that's true. I have not found anybody yet that did not apply to. The brother on the right, his eyeballs are kind of hard to see. They're, they're squishing shut. Well, I can't see his eyeballs so well, but I can see the teardrop tattoos. So. Oh, one on each side. How about that? They're a little crooked. Huh. Jesse J. Lunford is 26. His brother James is 24. They're from Holly, Colorado. And they are on the docket for first-degree murder in a case that apparently shook the town of Holly where this took place. They are alleged to have murdered Anthony Contreras, who's a 46-year-old man. Actually, the police had been called out to the residence earlier in the evening for harassment issues. So they come out and they clear the call at 6.56 in the evening after an investigation and finding that neither of the parties wanted to cooperate or file charges and essentially they just weren't getting anywhere so they clear the call they leave at 656 and just before eight o'clock the same evening they get a call for shots fired deputies arrive 16 minutes later which i just want to point out like 16 minutes i don't know about you i hear that and i think well that's enough time for me to like get shot and die and start to decompose before the cops get there which i'm not picking on them it's a funding thing and there's only so many cops and who knows how big their area is but the reality is 16 minutes is a long time if you need emergency help well you can definitely die in 16 minutes that's for sure but i'm not familiar with this part of colorado but i know there are some parts of that state and some parts of the other states in the country where a county can be so large that it can take you an hour to get from populated area out to certain residences that are far away or look at the folks in alaska where the the police can only get there by airplane or helicopter or siberian husky (laughs) right so you know if you you call the cops it it may be a day or two before you you can it's no one's fault it just is the nature of the geography yeah exactly and and i'm I'm glad you doubled down on that and that wasn't i'm not trying to point out that the cops were negligent or did anything wrong or is in any way their fault but the reality is people you gotta have a plan right you never know what's gonna happen and my goodness at least have a first aid kit and just be aware of how long it might take emergency personnel to show up where you live and plan accordingly anyway 
enough of that off my soapbox Contreras's uh, family they were shocked to find out that, that this happened that this took place that these brothers they came back after this harassment call later that evening and apparently they shot Mr. Contreras both brothers have been charged like I said with first degree murder and the community which is apparently a smaller town or at least one that's not used to this kind of thing they are just very distraught with what has taken place. I guess it's also worth noting that that the brothers who committed the shooting were arrested at the scene. So if they did try to go anywhere, they didn't do a very good job at it. The place where the police went, where the shooting took place, and the argument and, or the harassment and all that, was this where the victim was living? So apparently this residence that the police had responded to, there was a party going on there that night. And people in, in the family have said to this newspaper, which is the... How do you think this pronounced? Kiowa? <laughs> I, I wouldn't go near it. I don't know. Okay, so we're just going to spell it out. Uh, K-I-O-W-A County, independent in Colorado. If you know how to pronounce it, shout out, send us a message. So I would say Kiowa or Kiowa. Anyway, so they've reported that a family member said that this place was a known drug house in the area and that there's no ordinance or there's no way to deal with some of the problems people are having. And the, the town was recently trying to clean it up because the house had no utilities and part of the roof is missing. Other people told the newspaper that uh, people reported it, but nothing's ever done. And that they didn't really know these people very well, but that they live out of a car that looks like it's been in a demolition derby. Yikes. The house needs to be dis- demolished, that they are scary. People have called the sheriff's office, but the sheriff's office usually can't do anything. So this residence, I mean, it seems like it's a known... A problem place according to the article it's unclear who actually owns this house and so they say the situation is not uncommon as in most rural communities in eastern colorado and western kansas these kind of houses just they happen and there's a potential for creating problems so the, the town's trying to wrestle through how to deal with it and this has brought it to a head but what an unfortunate incident that it had to come to somebody losing their life over a, seems like some kind of a minor altercation that then turned into a, a shooting and a murder it's just unfortunate that Mr. Contreras had to die. As his family said, things have to change. This could have been avoided. In their perspective, the police could have done anything. It sounds like the police are saying they're hamstrung because there's no ordinance or law on the books about having a crappy house and living out of a demolition derby car in your front in a front yard. But and there's got to be some way to, to avoid this kind of stuff. Yeah, later down when it gets into the weeds here in this article in the, what do we say this was, Kiowa County Independent? Yeah. Holly has a $60,000 budget that they set for police coverage for 2023. Oh, wow. No wonder it took 16 minutes because the cop probably has to clock in and go work for 10 minutes because that's all they can afford to pay him for. So if you want to pay one police officer $35,000 a year in salary, by the time you add on benefits, payroll taxes, and insurance, and all that jazz, that'll cost you 60 grand. For 60 grand, you can get one cop that's poorly paid, and there's 168 hours in a week. (laughs) So, uh, now my guess is, and if you read further on down, they're they're talking about uh, securing a police department with uh, Granada, so perhaps they're in some kind of a paid mutual aid agreement with another jurisdiction where they, you know, maybe they pay a, a county department or another city to provide either a response or some limited patrol it does look like very small town the budget thing that blows my mind i don't know how you police a town with sixty thousand dollars hopefully they're getting they have some kind of a mutual agreement with the county state whatever i'm sure they do but that's probably why it took 16 minutes for the cop to show up 
So the $60,000 budget they have for police coverage for 2023, and they have to spend it by October if they want to receive a $102,000 grant that'll help them combining police departments with Granada or Grenada. Hopefully Granada has two cops. Wow. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode.